Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week I am reviewing episode 9 of Hulu's Castle Rock. And guys, as we begin, I do apologize in the background if you hear a two and a half year old calling my name. Uh, I just put her down for her nap. Um, she's fighting it. Um, but it is a fight that I will win, not her. She will go down for her nap. Um, but I do apologize if the beginning of this episode is marked by a uh, crazy kid uh, shouting daddy in the background. Um, yeah, so this week I'm reviewing episode 9 of Hulu's Castle Rock. I can't believe we only have one more episode after this. This was uh, a big episode. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, but before I get there, I just want to read a couple emails. Um, first up, Greg writes, Hello, constant reviewer. So I was reading the Marvel release of The Stand for the upteenth time, LOL, and it popped into my head to ask you if you've ever read it. If you haven't, I would highly suggest you look into it. Honestly, it follows the novel very closely, more closely than the 1904 miniseries. The art is fantastic and is probably the closest thing we'll ever get to a proper, true, cinematic adaptation of The Stand. Maybe I'm a bit biased because The Stand is my favorite fiction novel of all time, hands down, but truly, you need to check it out if you haven't already. Also, Castle Rock is feeding my fanboy addiction quite nicely, lol. Let me know your thoughts on the Marvel version, as I'd love to hear them. Thank you for your time, my friend. Long days and pleasant nights. May it do you fine. Um, Greg, yeah, I have the first couple volumes of The Stand. I don't know where I left off. Um, I picked it up uh, issue by issue when it was first being released, and then I, I kind of dropped off. And then uh, a couple years ago at the New York Comic Con, they were selling it... Um, very inexpensively um, in the in the trade paperback format. So I picked up a couple that were available, um, thinking to myself, it's maybe something that I would review on the Stephen King cast. But I realized as I started reading it again, I'm like, there's not much that I, I, I could talk about uh, that I didn't cover extensively in my review of The Stand itself because it is such a close adaptation. It's almost a little too close. Um, I have an issue when a... Ah, when a when a story is originated in one medium and then it is told basically beat by beat in another medium, um, I, I just find it to be it, it it doesn't fulfill its potential within the medium itself. That's that's how I feel. I I, I say I, I will say that it's 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 well done, um, and you're right. The art by is it Mike Perkins? I want to say. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 Mike Perkins. Um, no, the, the art is phenomenal, and uh, yeah, it's it's a good it's a good quick read. Um, but for me, if I'm gonna get my kicks from the stand, I'm gonna go with uh, the book. So I I'm kind of ambivalent about it. I respect it. I acknowledge it. It's there. I own portions of it in different forms different formats and I'll probably wind up buying the rest at some point but um, I don't know I, I just I, I feel as though there is a surface level adaptation to it and I, I wish that it went deeper and really embraced um, the storytelling potential within a comic book medium um, and then Edith writes, uh, hi, listening to your podcasts and enjoy. Castle Rock is great. A lot of the movies or TV movies they do disappoint me. The only one that I felt was the best was the TV movie, The Stand. Wow, two, two stand references here. 
The cast was great, and it went by the book, but I digress. I'm thrilled how the Castle Rock is shaping up. Spooky guy with no name that is Satan incarnate. Insane. Oh, we'll be getting that in, in this episode. Can't wait to watch the next show. Yes, please. Thank you, Edith. Edith, thank you for writing in, and both Edith and Greg, um, if you have any time on your hands, feel free to... Um, leave a review on, on iTunes, and that goes out to all of you guys as well. If you have any time on your hands, a review on iTunes will help me out. And much like Edith and Greg, if you have any extra spare time on your hands and you do want to share your thoughts about Castle Rock, if you want to share your thoughts about um, uh, The Stand adaptation, if you want to share your thoughts about any of the upcoming Stephen King um, adaptations, right now they're currently filming It Part 2. If you have any thoughts on that, um, actually, I think they just wrapped up filming on that. But if you have any thoughts about anything related to Stephen King, feel free to write into uh, Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. Okay, guys, let's get into this. Let's uh, talk about uh, Castle Rock, Episode 9, Henry Deaver. So I'm going to read Zach Dion's uh, recap from Decider. And he begins Behold, and Castle Rock will tell you a mystery vaster than the kid being Matthew Deaver. He's Henry Deaver, biological son edition, who jumped into our stories version of 1991 from an alternate timeline and lived 27 years in a cage without aging. Two Henrys, two timelines, three pounds of splattered gray matter where your mind just was. God turned his back on this place, opens Matthew Deaver's narration in Castle Rock episode 9, studiously recreating Lacey's suicide letter verbatim at points. He dedicated his life to fighting this great battle, to hearing his voice, let me stand to... thwart the door i told him but god he doesn't take requests he duplicated the cage like he duplicated those words except in his basement matthew a former reverend here at least he has the sense to call the day that god answered him terrible not as in the warden numbly thought beautiful then the show's most forcefully lost e moment strikes the psych transformation of the kid as presumably a fugitive from the castle rock police into an average dude taking a run in modern day boston where he has a chic-ass house and suit, some donuts. Time is a raised sugary circle and a note signed Love, M, as in Murray, Henry's ex, Wendell's mom. In this Henry's reality, the two aren't long separated, but happy and trying to conceive. The prospect of a baby gives this Henry a goal for next week's finale, but it also summons our Henry's answer for why Ruth and Matthew decided to adopt. Now the explanation for this alternate timeline. They lost a baby in labor, Guess they don't want to go down that road again. Matthew's return from strangulation as an infant also gets us in a what-if-he'd-lived-died frame of mind. Giving a fancy presentation while we're scrambling to adjust this total change in body language and style and the way the world works, Henry reveals he's a doctor working to eradicate Alzheimer's. Continuity. It's hard work. We don't notice we're doing it, but we're placing events in a sequence so that our lives make sense, he says, stating the episode's purpose. When continuity is interrupted, everything starts to slide. Reason, planning, problem solving, and ultimately, confusion with time and space. That is the story of Hulu's Castle Rock's Alzheimer's disease. They've given a cat, Puck, a.k.a. our Henry's childhood dog, a brain implant that has him finally in command of his arch-narrative again. A call from Pangborn destroys the last chance that we're witnessing for some kind of near-future rebrand for the kid, one where he used those supposed evil powers to turn himself into an urbane gentleman practicing medicine. Ruth and Matthew Deaver's biological son survived labor in this timeline, and his dad survived 1991, but now he's shot himself. 
Henry hasn't been to the Rock for many years, maybe since Alan successfully rerouted Ruth's tragic existence by convincing her to leave Matthew sometimes pre-91. The series has been cagey about the kid's eye color, and his return to town poignantly displays full heterochromia. This edition of The Rock is flourishing the way that our Molly, herself thriving as a city councilor chair, imagined it, with business like Claiborne Creamery, as in Dolores, didn't catch that, Sheldon Stationery, as in Misery's Paul, a sushi ramen joint, and the revived Emporium Glorium, and the Mellow Tiger Gastro Pub. An annual harvest festival is underway and balloons are everywhere, not just on one sad mailbox at a dead guy's bargain-priced house. It's the latest, especially large nod to Skarsgård, other alternate existence Pennywise, but the park's gate is also numbered 19 on each side, powerful in the Kingverse. The figure was also doubled up in last year's Dark Tower movie several times, as the film premiered at 9.19pm and had a $19 million opener. It's surreal retracing of our Henry's journey past Matthew's church, same rolling suitcase, an off-kilter camera angle, but no inside visit, and up North Prospect Street. The house is ridden with hoarder's neglect, appearing to have been decorated by that weirdo in the woods. Um, and guess who's trapped in a mother-effing basement in the year of our Lord 2018? Child Henry, our Henry, eyes bloodshot, stare vacant. Similarities and echoes between these two have been constant, but now they are full-on sameness, a true mirror between other here's and now's. Zaleski is still alive here and takes part in the rescue like he did at Shawshank. He's a cop now, another person living the ambition we previously saw him scrabbling toward. Little Henry tries bolting for the woods but gets carted off to Juniper Hill. The artist formerly known as the Kid keeps the deja vu train chugging by parsing through his estranged dad Olds tapes in the storage room above the shed, a captor's journal in weekly microcassettes rather than oil paintings. At the start, Matthew introduces someone will soon spy across space and time. Has there been a curse since the beginning? Since those original French settlers froze and starved 200 years ago, the only survivor, a young girl, reduced to cutting up and eating the corpses of her own family. We've been waiting four episodes for the crazy story the kid told Lacey upon capture, but our Henry's tale gives a good idea what to expect. Toward the end of the worst of it, the bad batch we had that spring... Matthew recalls on the tape, he prayed for the woods. He prayed in the woods for hours every night to hear God's voice, having encountered it once before. Well, if it's not just one voice but a choir, he smartly wonders. Then an unfamiliar boy showed up at the door, looking caught, saying, I heard it, Dad. It was so loud, Dad. It was all around us in my head, and it was too much. Then you were gone, and then I was gone, and I woke up in the forest, but suddenly there was no snow. And then I walked into town, and it looked different. Castle Rock, but different and not one person in town knew me. He told Matthew he'd adopted him, that they'd gone to pray in the forest to listen, and he heard it, he said he really heard it, no fooling this time, none of his mother's trickery and deceit, and there, right there, he caught me, because who could know that? Who could possibly know that that woman tried to trick me? The boy was convincing, convincing, answering all of Matthew's personal questions right, and it felt like redemption, like he'd been returned to me, charged but the same, restored. My sweet Henry back to me at last. And it was then I realized what I'd done. I'd wished, not prayed, wished, desired for this. Just this. And here it was, like I'd ordered it off the damn TV. He'd recognize the devil's handiwork. And we again recognize why Ruth was right to leave him. 
Thus began the 27-year captivity confirmed by Matthew's final tape being labeled week 1437. Many times he considered freeing this 11-year-old swayed by his story, his charms. Still, he was a more involved captor than Lacey. There were moments when I was weak. We shared Christmases in that basement, Red Sox victories. I caught, I taught him to carve perfect figurines from soap as I once did with my own boy. What a guy. He kept the boy imprisoned, his vision of a... F- his vision of failure saying tragedy after tragedy will pile up men will turn on their own blood will run in the streets this henry will soon hear the same lunacy from lacy for his own 27 year sentence there's been a fire with multiple fatalities at juniper hill making it feel like we're on a set set fateful course molly and the new henry managed to get into a room with the boy leading to that shot of him in the sunglasses the fact that our henry has seen it in previous flashes presumably means that he started remembering and it's confirmation that molly has begun to remember sense this other self when she touches his hand um the dark tower three the wastelands explores something similar where jake feels his sanity fraying as he straddles the paradox of um spoiler alert spoiler alert, of dying in one reality and living in another. Molly uses her stature to finagle a plan for the boy to sleep at her house, then ditches their police escort, Zaleski. We have to help him, she tells grown-up Henry. We have to take him where he wants to go, toward the sound. They chase the boy into the trees, and he stops, staring into the moonlight, and we snap incredibly to daytime, wobbly and shimmery. Someone from long ago stands there, holding the umpteenth big old knife of the series, bloodied surely the french settler who ate her frozen family molly touches him and shifts over as well the girl dashes and they give chase molly pauses a moment taking this taking in the strange sky and hears a faraway shout to stop by zaleski who we had heard exclaim this a full 30 seconds earlier she jolts her stomach is suddenly soaked in blood zaleski says he fired only the one warning shot into the air leaving us to wonder did the interdimensional cannibal invisibly stab our beloved malls her dying words are a plea for this henry to help our henry and he's flipped to the same pearlescent realm both h's are surrounded by violent moments from across time old-timey shackled prisoners chased by cops and dogs a 70s or 80s girl slitting her wrist the french child above them that otherworldly sky is covered in a flock of birds and click it's all gone, and the artist, soon to be known as the kid, is again in the woods, now snowing. Boy Henry got zapped through, too, and he runs into the sequence that opened the show, Pangborn finding him on the frozen lake. We've been waiting for this resolution, and it's chilling seeing it wrapped in this bow. The new Henry witnesses it, all from a bluff, as sicken- sickeningly happy ending-ish score swoons, and we fade out, brain-breaking complete. We come back to 2018, our 2018, to Molly's old bedroom, where just before this episode, the kid informed Molly she had once died in the woods. I wandered around for days. I was trying to get back, he said. I couldn't. Then Lacey found me, took me to Shawshank, said he heard the call, said I was the devil. You believe me, don't you? And then uh, Zach also includes two great constant reader Easter eggs, which I'm going to include here rather than in my own um, review in a little bit um, because he's really dead on here. So Zach writes, A thinny, which we've probably seen here, is described in the Dark Tower 4 Wizard in Glass as a place where the fabric of existence is almost entirely worn away. 
It's witnessed as a light green, quick silver shimmer like bog water and a sullen silvery liquescence that makes an atonal squalling like a handful of sharp pebbles squeezed and ground together in a strong hand. It can manifest as a voice offering devilish temptations, one that vibrated in the knot of nerves below the breastbone and seemed to eat at the damp and delicate tissue behind the eyes. Thinnies aren't exactly often identified as such, but their presence is possible in stories like The Mist, The Talisman, The Langoliers, and From a Buick 8. Okay, guys. Uh, now it's time for my review. Um, so, we begin with uh, establishing shots of the chaos of Castle Rock through the years, through the narration of our warped priest. We see a very effective couple bits of uh, CGI of a helicopter crash on what I assume to be the town gazebo, a school bus hit by a train. And then we get a, like, a terrible flashback to Matthew's mother, Henry's grandmother. This was a very, very disturbing image that it, it genuinely bothered me of watching this woman attempt to murder her son, her infant son, by choking him with that close. It, 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 it really it has stuck with me. After the credits, we get the kid running away from the police, hunting him down for the apparent murder of Alan Pangborn, right? Nope. Of course not. That would be too easy. In a wonderful dismissal of hand-holding storytelling, Thomason and Shaw simply plunge you into the alternate universe where the kid called home without any explanation or warning. Yes, there had been mention of other whens and other wheres, here's and nows when discussing the schisma, but this is a big, big jump in the cosmic territory that feels very removed from the initial hook of the early episodes of this show. And it's not a knock. By the way, it's very much a compliment. And it made me think back uh, to that conversation that I had with uh, Dustin Thomason, which you can listen to my interview with one of the co-showrunners. Um, in it, he explained his love for The Stand. Wow, The Stand's just getting a lot of conversation today in this episode. But he explained a lot of love for The Stand, um, specifically King's ability to start with one genre and then morph it into another um, and that tricky devil did the same thing here, all the while teasing us with flourishes of Alan Pangborn's mention of magic tricks. Congratulations, Dusty and Sam. You guys did good. It's a really wonderful and disorienting fake-out. He's not running from cops through a small town. He's running along the bridge of Boston. Not holed up in a backyard shack, but in an elegant apartment. Not draped in an old sweater, but a snazzy suit. This is not the kid that we've come to know. And when he picks up a card that says, Break a Brain Today, that's a wonderful wink of the creators to the viewers, giving us all a heads up of what to expect. He then gives a pitch about Alzheimer's and continuity, reinforcing the themes of disorientation and loss and to the very fundamental concepts of reality. He then shows an image of his test subject, Puck, who keen viewers will realize has been named after his childhood dog. Um... And it's more than just a reference here. I think that's a bit of character work, showing his passion and his fuel. Henry, this Henry, wants that constant reminder of what he's fighting for, his mother. So using his childhood's dog name in a similar fashion to his mother's chess piece is going to anchor him to his cause. 
And then to continue the disorientation, uh, Henry gets a call from Alan, whose call brings him back to Castle Rock, much like the Henry that we've come to know. This is going to be the first of many doublings, this phone call. A different phone call brought our Henry back to Castle Rock, but a phone call nonetheless. And when this Henry arrives to Castle Rock, it's a remarkably different Castle Rock, a more jovial one, more reminiscent of the Castle Rock that I remember reading about with a little fair on the commons, brighter, sunnier, cleaner looking, less run down. It still feels more like a small city than a small town, um, but it is definitely a contrast to that dark, dangerous, dairy-like castle rock that we have come to know from the previous eight episodes. As he heads into the fall harvest fair, there's a shot where Skarsgård is framed next to a bushel of balloons, which cracked me up thinking about his more famous Stephen King character. And that doubling that I mentioned continues with Henry walking up the same street as Andre Holland had, stopping at the church as Andre Holland had. The difference being Andre went in, went to uh, where a cemetery had been and Bill Skarsgård stops off at a fair swimming with people. Arriving to his childhood home, he, much like the, the Henry that we had come to know, um, discovers signs of disarray except where had been a frying pan on a hot stove is now a plate of fly-covered meat. Then looking outside the window, he sees Molly's house, has a flashback to his childhood friend, and reintroduces himself to Allison Tolman's character, Bridget, who is more Molly in this world than Molly is. And when this Molly shows up, um, Molly is the one that is more put together of the two. And when they go to the Mellow Tiger, which isn't a dive bar anymore, but a trendy brewery, I realize that this version of Castle Rock is what our Molly has been dreaming about passion of reconverting the mill fits in more with this world than her own. And in The Talisman, our twinners, and especially in, um, in Black House, twinners sometimes would have, have snippets of the other worlds um, or have dreams through the, the eyes of their, their twinners that across the universe and across um, these dimensional planes, their, their, their essences were, were linked and they would get feelings and, and um, sensations from their twinners and you can't help but think uh, that this is happening to Molly, that the Molly that we have come to know and love is getting this passion from the Molly across the way through the other world. Now, one thing that stood out to me uh, is that in real life, there's a 13-year age gap between these two actors, uh, Bill Skarsgård and Melanie Linsky. Now, there's only a two-year age gap between Andre Holland and Melanie Linsky. Now, I don't care about ages at all, but when it comes to childhood friends, it would mean that if they're following the actor's real ages she was 24 when he was 11, um, the age that we learned that they were childhood friends. Or maybe in this world, their relationship is more of a babysitter, babysat situation. I don't know. But that age discrepancy kind of threw me for a loop. Um, but regardless, it, it's it's apparent that they have a relationship here. And you know how I've been harping on the interactions with Molly and Henry in the world that we have known? Well, these two characters seem much more interested in each other as characters. The Molly and Henry of the previous eight episodes have been interested in plot details, so this was very refreshing to me. I don't know if the dissonance is purposeful, but I don't know, even if it's not, it works. 
It makes the Henry and Molly that we have come to know look like shadows of the the, the relationship um, and of the characters who seem to have a healthier relationship in, in our world. So the, the, now that we have seen the full picture here, it definitely gives more context um, and more shading to the, the, the performances and the, the conversations that have been occurring with the, the Melanie Linsky um, and Andre Holland version of Molly and Henry, respectively. Returning to his childhood home, he heads into the basement to find Henry, our Henry, locked in a cage, which is yet another doubling effect that we get, mirroring when Zaleski discovers um, you know, this Henry in a cage after investigating the bowels of a building associated with a dead man. Okay. Speaking of Zaleski, we see him again in this world, not a burnt-out CO, but a police officer in the Castle Rock Police Department. But like his alternate universe counterpart, he's instrumental in the unification of the two Henry Deavers. And like our Henry had found videotapes, this Henry finds audio tapes. And armed with this audio cassette much in the way that our Henry had taken the camera, he heads into the woods to find some truth to the mystery of the schisma. Now, I just gotta say... The narration by Matthew Deaver is really effective in this scene, uh, describing the meeting of one world's Henry with another world's Matthew, and that repetition of the way he kept saying, it's me, Dad, I found it, Dad, I heard it, Dad. Like, that repetition and the way that he inflicted um, or put intonation on, on that, that word, Dad, it, uh, this actor does a really good job at playing the role of a reverend um, who does lose his mind, but you can tell through the power of his voice. You know, I'm not a very religious person, but I would listen to that at church. He knows how to tell a story with, with his voice and his words. Um, okay, now, the murder of Matthew by the hands of Molly, um, I've been thinking about this. Is this... One world's Molly exacting justice on another world's Matthew for keeping a Henry locked up in the basement? It's making me wonder. I wonder if we're going to get answers about that next week. Now, um, knowing now that Henry has been locked up for 27 years, it just makes you feel that much worse for the Andre Holland character, whose life is now completely screwed up from the knowledge that comes with the truth behind his imprisonment if he ever gets to that truth if it ever truly unlocks for him. Molly and Henry head towards Juniper Hill only to find that there's been a similar fire with Henry at the center of it. And once they find the young Henry, he convinces them that they need to head to the woods. Now what I don't get is what Molly sees when she touches our Henry's hand. She sees the flashes of our Matthew's death by the hands of our Molly, which means that, what, our Henry knew about the death before he disappeared? I can't quite make sense of the sequence of events regarding the disappearance, the murder, and the return. So if anyone wants to clarify that for me, um, please send in an email to stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. They head into the woods, and we see the schisma at work with lost souls wandering the woods unstuck from time and space. Molly is shot with another doubling, Wherever Zaleski goes, people are shot. And ultimately, Henry returns to his home with this Henry following him, only to be locked up by Warden Lacey. And what's interesting now that we know the truth, we 
you know, come to question everything that has happened with the kid who, you know, has been led to believe that he's evil and he has a curse around him and he doesn't age. And now what you can take away from this is, at least what I think, is that the lack of aging and the curse that seems to occur around him, it it's reality sort of pointing out to others that something is wrong with this person, that it this person isn't evil by any means, but shouldn't be here. And it's like the antibodies working around um, an, invasing, an invading virus or something. Um, that's what it seems to me, that it, he is from one reality and is not supposed to be in this other reality, and th- this is creating a um, friction in the fundamental uh, fabric of, of, of reality. There's a dissonance surrounding him wherever he goes, and so he is an aging um, because he's not from the same uh, time stream, right? He's from another universe's time stream, so it's not applicable here. And the bad luck is just reality doing crazy, random things around him. So he is cursed, but not not through supernatural means, but through crazy, heady sci-fi means. Um, so that that's that's very, very interesting to me. Now we have some Easter eggs. So, I mean, you could say that there's an Easter egg for the Dark Tower here. Um, you know, the the fact that there are other worlds than these, right? So, I mean, the, the tower is never referenced. It's This doesn't have to be linked to the Dark Tower at all. I mean, there's there's no expectation that we're going to see Midworld or the Gunslinger or anything like that. But the, the flipping between one world to the next, it's very reminiscent of both the Talisman and the Dark Tower. Um, as Zach had said in his recap, the Emporium Glorium, okay, which was Pop Merrill's store um, in the Sun Dog, the Emporium Glorium um, is definitely seen on on Main Street. Um, the and also another uh, another Easter egg is the the Red Sox victories. That the fact that Matthew Deaver says that that to me is a clear shout out to Stephen King's love of the Red Sox. And lastly, the birds in the air seems to function like psychopomps to me. Um, and all I could think about was the sparrows are flying again as all of the birds flew through the air. Now, guys, I have a prediction. I think that we should be very, very worried for Wendell. In the alternate world, Henry and his wife mentioned trying to get pregnant twice. Most likely she was pregnant at the time he flipped over, and while he was gone, she gave birth to a son named Wendell. With our Wendell hearing the schisma, I'm very concerned that there's going to be another flip, and the sons will trade places of their father's universes, with each father having to take care of their counterparts' sons to rewrite the wrongs of their respective jailers, Lacey and Matthew Deaver. So we are going to find out. Only one episode left. There's a lot to wrap up. And now that we're dealing with multiple worlds, um, I, I just wonder what, what the conclusion is is going to look like. But I am very, very excited. So guys, thank you for tuning in today. As I have, uh, as I said earlier, if you have any time on your hands, feel free to write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com or leave a review on iTunes, which would greatly help me out. And I will be um, back next week to review... Um, the last episode of Castle Rock. And then from there, um, 
I think that what I will do after that is uh, start reviewing Joe Hill's Lock and Key. Uh, because this past spring I reread all of Lock and Key, and I've just been waiting for the right time to get all my thoughts out on that. So if you haven't read Lock and Key by Joe Hill, I strongly recommend that you go out and do it, because it's a phenomenal comic book um, that feels very reminiscent of Stephen King. Okay, guys. So that's all I got for this week. Um, But I'll be back next week. So may you have uh, long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast.